May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts draw us ever closer to you. Amen. The prophet is speaking words of comfort to the Israelites amidst incredible destruction and devastation. The Israelites had experienced total devastation. Their cities burned, men killed, temples and walls razed, homes destroyed, families scattered. Then they were taken from their homeland and forced to live in exile for generations. Throughout their exile, they held on to hope, envisioning Zion and dreaming of the return to the glory of their former life. Finally, the Israelites conquerors, the Babylonians, were they themselves conquered by the Persians, and this allowed the Israelites to return to their homeland. We can imagine their great joy and anticipation of returning, and we can almost give them words to speak. Finally, a return to normal. However, when they return to Israel, they find that their city has been destroyed. The glory that they hoped to return to has been completely erased. The destruction confronts the reality and challenges the very dream and visions and hopes that they had in their heart that sustained them through exile. It's a double devastation. Everything they dreamed of is gone. The temples, the city, flattened. Families scattered. Everything unmoored. We can imagine their lament. Who even are we if we don't have these traditions and temples? Where will God be? And even though they are back in Jerusalem, Jerusalem feels further away than it ever has. The glory of Jerusalem that helped them survive no longer exists, and they experience a double devastation. And it's in this moment, this emotion, that the prophet speaks to the people, offers words of comfort by reminding them who God is. The prophet does not deny the history of the people. He does not discount the old things, the old stories. The prophet acknowledges the past work of God. God was in the city, the temples, the traditions and families and communities that we have lost. God was with them then. But, but, God is here now, making all things new. God is doing a new thing because that's who God is. A blender blends things. A toaster makes toast. God, what does God do? Makes ways in the wilderness. 
God is doing something new because that's who God is, the one who makes ways in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, out of nothing creation, out of death life. No devastation, no destruction, no despair erases God. In fact, that's exactly when the stage is set for God to do what God does best. And the prophet calls on us. Look and see. Don't you perceive it? Wait patiently. It's happening. God is doing God's thing again. This assurance, this reminder, this call to turn once again to God, turning away from our own plans and ambitions, our hopes, our temples, our cities, our programs, our practices. Turn from them and look to God. Draw near to God. This prophecy of Isaiah has been a source of assurance and comfort for many generations throughout history. A reminder that through our suffering, God is with us, present with us, doing a new thing. And that's how God remains changeless amidst the variety and mixing and wilderness. God is constant in that God is constantly making things new. We may resonate with this experience of devastation and longing. We, us, here at St. Cross, we have experienced a great loss, widespread trauma, tragedy, the loss of places and peoples and practices we hold dear. Many of us have experienced personal loss and grief. And as a community, we have lost and grieved and mourned together as well. Those things, the tradition and time, the relationships, the ways they have been tested and fractured. And as we emerge from COVID tide, we may find the old ways are no longer there. And we may find ourselves joining the lament of the Israelites, asking, what's going on? What happened? Even though we are back, we realize how far away we are from that vision that sustained us. And that existential crisis begins to creep in. Who even are we if we don't have the people and practices and programs we once had and so loved? And Isaiah's prophecy speaks to us today in that moment. The prophet reminds us that God is the one who does new things. And our response, our job is to wait faithfully tuning ourselves to the new ways of God in order that we might perceive the way God makes in the wilderness. But come on, Josh, what does that even look like? What do we do, practically speaking? You've sold me. I want that comfort. What can I do to draw near? Well, the answer is the good news of today's gospel. Because Mary acts as a prophet. Even though she has no speaking lines, she is a prophet who models and invites us to a posture of patient discernment. Amidst her own double devastation, Mary lives into, acknowledges the death and resurrection of Christ. 
This story about Jesus at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home takes place just one chapter after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Mary's grief was a double devastation. Not only did she lose her brother and she died, but she also loses something of Jesus in that moment, her friend, rabbi, and teacher. Jesus, that holy mystic healer whose ministry she supported, He had traveled across the country offering healing to all sorts of people. But when it was her time, where was he? Jesus did not come for her, and her brother died. She experienced not just the loss of Lazarus, but the loss of kinship and protection that Jesus offered her. We may remember this powerful exchange. Mary goes to Jesus and confronts him, saying, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. How does Jesus respond? He joins her in her grief. Jesus wept. That statement in its brevity says so much. Jesus weeps. Jesus first joins Mary in grieving knowing full well that he could and would raise Lazarus. Jesus joins Mary in grieving and mourning and acknowledging the death. Then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. In the midst of her grief, Jesus reminds us that God is the one who makes ways in the desert, brings life from death, calls forth Lazarus from the tomb. In today's gospel, Mary has changed from anger to anointing, sitting at Jesus' feet with a new perception, a new way of seeing. She sits not as a student listening to the teacher sitting at his feet, but one anointing Jesus, acknowledging his death and resurrection. She's actually perhaps the first disciple to testify to Jesus' death and resurrection in this act, while the other disciples are still figuring out or coming to the terms with the fact that, yes, Jesus will have to die, die. Mary anoints Jesus with burial oil, the pure nard, as if to say, yes, he will die, but I am anointing him now because I know there will not be a body to anoint afterwards. This is how Mary draws near to Jesus, not like she did before, but acknowledging death and resurrection and intimate kinship. Her drawing near, she does several things. She sacrifices her own status, her pride, and her savings. She lowers herself to a servant status in washing Jesus' feet. She humiliates herself in the cultural standards of the day by revealing her hair. And she gives generally using the pure nard that she spent a year's wages to purchase. We would presume that she purchased this burial oil for the sake of her brother. But now instead she anoints Jesus, testifying to his imminent death. And that reality fills the room as the aroma envelops this whole scene. Everyone instantly knew what that meant. 
not like we do when we read the gospel as literary foreshadowing, but they knew it in a practical sense. They remember the smell from other times they've buried their loved ones. Mary draws near to Jesus as Jesus' death is imminent, but God is a God who does new things, makes ways in the desert. God makes a way in the wilderness of the public trials and corrupt politicians and unjust executions and borrowed tombs of the weeks ahead. Mary, as prophet, calls us to draw near to that Christ. She is helping the disciples perceive the new way. Mary is also calling on us to draw near to Jesus, acknowledging his death and resurrection. We don't have Jesus in the flesh, but we do have that Jesus that joins us whenever two or three are gathered. When we gather together, we draw nearer to Jesus. How can we draw near to Christ as Mary models for us? Well, that's what this Lent has been all about. We started with Ash Wednesday. We impose ashes on one another, a curious, perhaps morbid ritual. The words tell us you are dust, but the action tells us you are loved. This ritual lingers a bit longer than distributing the host. It has a bit more of a tender touch on the forehead where we exchange asses and perhaps a little sweat. We brush away the bangs and offer a soft-spoken prayer. Lent continues where many of us have joined together for book groups and small groups. Many of us have stood side by side, serving our neighborhood and our needs, bringing meals to one another and offering prayers and singing gentle meditative repetitions of Teze hymns each week. Lent ends on Monday, Thursday with the washing of feet. Each of us will be invited to remember Christ's servant love for us through the act of washing one another's feet. Through this act, we enter the humbleness of Christ's servant leadership and we receive a new way of seeing and being in the world new eyes to see the way in the wilderness. Through these acts, we draw ourselves to God, the one who makes a way in the wilderness. Through these acts, Christ becomes part of who we are, giving us a new ways to see. God is doing a new thing in our midst, right here, right now. We just have to perceive it. Amen. Thank you.